Hello, Renoites listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. I am your host, Connor McQuibby. Renoites is Reno's weekly long-form interview show where I talk to guests who are doing interesting or important things here in the biggest little city. Did you check out last week's episode yet? My co-producer for this season, Lynn Lazaro, interviewed one of the owners of the Radical Cat, a feminist bookstore, community meeting space, and cat adoption center that opened earlier this year near Midtown. Lynn is a journalism student at UNR, and I've been so grateful to have their help this season. Lynn also started the student newsroom Vibrant Voices at UNR. I'll put a link to their Instagram in the show notes, so please follow them as well and check out the Radical Cat episode from last week. It was a really good one. It's no secret that schools in Northern Nevada are facing a lot of challenges. Washoe County is one of the most underfunded school districts in the entire country in terms of per-pupil spending. Teachers are leaving the profession for more lucrative jobs, leaving major staff shortages, and funding strategies like cannabis taxes have not been the cure-all that some people may have hoped. Joining me on the podcast today to talk about those issues facing our Northern Nevada schools is Kaylin Evans. He's the founder of the Grassroots Teacher Group Empower Nevada Teachers and elected this year as president of the Washoe Education Association. That's the union representing Washoe County teachers. We had a great conversation about what has caused all of these issues over the years and decades, how to affect political change when politicians don't always follow through on their promises to support schools, the reason cannabis taxes often don't actually go to schools, and much more. Thank you so much for listening and doing your part to advocate for quality education and our teachers here in Nevada. Renoites is a listener-funded podcast. I know I might be a little crazy thinking this, but I do think there are enough people in Reno who want to hear from leaders in our community and are willing to give a little bit of money to support a project like this and make it financially sustainable. Thank you so much to a couple of our newest patrons, Adam and Alexis. Thank you both so much. Your financial support means so much to me. Renoist is also supported by Vicki Moosney, Abby Whitaker, Mike Van Houten, Sam Olson, and many others. So please take a moment to visit patreon.com slash renoites. You can learn more about how Patreon works. It is a way for listeners to support projects like this. And consider signing up to help sustain the project. Maybe one day I will stop losing money making it. (laughs) That's the dream. If you have any guest suggestions or feedback for me, people you'd like to hear on the show, topic ideas, please shoot me an email. My address is connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. I love to hear from listeners, so feel free to reach out. Also, follow me on Instagram, at renoites. And now, this week's guest, Kaylin Evans. Kaylin Evans, welcome to Renoites. Thanks for coming on the show today. Uh, Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So you're the new president of the Washoe Education Association, which is the the teachers union here Mm -hmm. in Washoe County. So to start, can you, I've had an episode already this season about unions. Can you tell me a little bit about the WEA, what type of union it is, and uh, and how you got involved in the teachers union? Yeah, sure. So um, our union covers not just, it's all certified staff in the district, so not just teachers, but also counselors. Um, speech paths, TOSAs, these are other, you know, teachers that may be in or in out of the classroom. Our deans, they all fall under our bargaining unit. Um, and I really got involved uh, through my own activism work, my own nonprofit work through a group called Empower Nevada Teachers. And that was a local nonprofit started here uh, with other educators in the classroom. And our focus was really on educator advocacy, but education in general across Nevada. Did a lot of work parallel with the union, both the local and the state as an organization, worked with other nonprofit organizations, 
really just trying to bring awareness to um, the issues that we're facing here in Nevada education. And then from there, you know, I joined the union and, you know, didn't currently serve on the board prior or anything like that, but had an opportunity to run, had a lot of support, uh, a lot of people wanting me to go for it. And so I did it and now I'm here. Right on. So tell me about your history as a teacher. So you're a teacher, you've worked here in Washoe County Schools for a while. Can you just tell me a little bit about uh, what you teach, what grades, what subjects, kind of like what's your experience with working in education? Yeah, so this will be my 11th year, I believe, in the district. So I taught about five years teaching second and third grade over at Lemelson STEM Academy. It's a local public elementary school, at-risk school over by the university. Did that for five years, and then I moved into the STEM coordinator position. So I focused, since we're a STEM school, I'm helping them develop our STEM curriculum, helping teachers implement that curriculum, a lot of co-teaching in the classroom, writing grants, just kind of building out the program itself for science, technology, engineering, and math curriculum. And then did that. I also worked with the State Department in terms of evaluating other schools in the state about the effectiveness of their STEM programs, helped some local schools and their uh, staff develop their own STEM programs. So from a professional standpoint, outside of just advocacy work, STEM was really my passion because in the classroom, it had such a strong impact on my students Um, and working with a lot of at-risk students that typically aren't exposed to that type of learning. Mm. um, The engagement that we saw from from my kids, uh, it really sold me on the importance of having engagement in the classroom and providing different opportunities for students outside of just traditional core content of math Mm -hmm. and reading. I mean, of course, those are important but we needed to provide them with other contexts of like why the world is the way that it is. And then when you engage students in their learning, that's where you get the most effective output. So I did that and and then I got into my nonprofit work while still doing for my teaching. And then now, you know, this is a full-time pullout gig. You know, it's actually work over the summer as well. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's been quite the transition, but it's been a really exciting. It's been a lot of work, a lot of work, but uh, it's really, it's good work. It's yeah. passionate work. Have you always, did you always want to be a teacher? What got you in, interested in education yeah. in the beginning? Well, you know, what's funny is I never wanted to be a teacher. And I actually remember a specific experience with my mom. We were leaving, I think I was in fourth grade and we had just gotten done with like another parent teacher principal conference. I was always in trouble in school. And we were walking out and I remember telling my mom, like, I don't know why anybody would want to be a teacher. I was like, you don't make shit. I probably didn't say shit at the time, but you don't make any money. Um, you know, you're not respected and you have to deal with kids like me all the time. And then, you know, fast forward, you know, made it through school in college, but I always knew I wanted to work with kids. So people would say, what do you want to do? And I'd say, well, I don't know, but I want to work with kids. Hmm. And I just always had a passion for children. Was going to go into counseling. That program got cut at the university because of uh, the recession budget cuts. And someone said, hey, have you tried education? So I tried it and, you know, I really fell in love with the profession and then found my way into it. And I feel like it's always, and when I run into old teachers of mine, they're just blown away that I'm a teacher. They're like, no fucking way. Are you a teacher, man? Like, that's crazy. Like, they're just mind blown because I was that kid in the classroom, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I feel like a lot of times those end up making your best teachers, because you understand and can relate with those kids in the classroom who a lot of times are deemed as like troublesome. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Have you always worked in Nevada schools? Yeah, I've always worked in Nevada schools. You know, I was raised here, um, you know, moved to Reno when I was two from Fallon. So I went through the public school system, got my undergrad and my graduate degree at the university. So yeah, you know, this is home. So you've been in the schools as a teacher for, you said 11 years, right? Yeah, 10. 
how have you seen things change over those 10 years? So you started as a teacher oh. a decade ago. A lot of things yeah. have been happening in the last decade. Can you just kind of give us a little overview of how things are going and how things have changed as, over the time you've been a teacher? Sure, sure. I think it's tricky because, you know, unfortunately, over the last decade, we have definitely, at least, you know, in my experience, seen a decline in terms of how we're supporting our educators at school. And that's what really got me into advocacy work in the first place. It was because I'm at my school, I'm walking down my hallway and I'm just seeing my colleagues just demoralized about the situation they're in and just kind of feeling a little bit hopeless about how things are in our school district. And that, and just seeing people who are just genuinely passionate, talented, selfless individuals feel just like they want to give up, that really struck me and it made me want to be active. And so over these years, we've just started to see a steady decline in terms of not only the academic performance, because that's linked to the way that we support education here as a state, um, our funding measures, the the amount of money that we put into education, our educational ranking has never been very high. I mean, we've always been, you know, very much towards the bottom in terms of how we fund and support education as a state. Mm-hmm. We've definitely started to see that come to a head. And then you, you know, you factor in what the pandemic did, what COVID did to education. We were not set up in order to to weather that storm because we were already you know, bailing water out of the ship for a decade. For years, we've been bailing water, just trying to stay afloat. And this whole idea of doing more with less, we've seen that, you know, tenfold over the last decade where it was like, we're just teaching. But now school isn't just for academics. I mean, it's everything. It's the nutritional, the emotional, the social, the academic well-being of our students. Everything we say that we're kind of lacking in as a society in terms of social structures we just place onto schools and we say, schools, you handle it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, who's going to handle that? It's the employees, right? And then how we've seen the profession start to shift in terms of the people that we get coming into the profession. We can't find people to come into this profession anymore. And you've seen it even when they do national studies, but it's, you know, everything's exacerbated here locally. But when they think about, you know, even teachers or parents, if you asked this question 25 years ago, would you want your child to be a teacher? overwhelmingly they would say yes and it was the first time just recently that that number fell below 50 percent where parents don't want their kids to become teachers and so it's really telling when you have a profession that we would all agree is like the cornerstone of a of a society yeah right? like you like teachers and the impacts they have and it's never obviously been about the money but now you know you have something that we should hold in such high regard where now we don't even want our own kids and i have you know i have teacher friends who are like, I don't want my child to be a teacher. It's like, isn't it's crazy. If you think about you're in a profession that you don't even want your kids to go into. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of factors that we can get into that have led to that. But it, 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 unfortunately, since I've started, we've definitely seen a steady decline in how we support. And now we're really coming to a head where, you know, we're at this critical juncture here locally. Yeah. Do you think that part of the appeal or part of the way to make people respect the profession more. Does that start with how we treat teachers as far as pay and work conditions? Is it partly a societal thing about how we think about teachers? I know there's a lot recently, just especially in the last couple of years, of political conversation about teachers and what they're teaching and how they're teaching. And there's kind of this spotlight and very critically on the profession too. So like, where do you think you start at making teaching a more desirable profession? Is it just, you know, you can give more money, but that's not going to solve the political issue. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, there's a number of factors, right? And if you look at it just from an economical standpoint, right? Traditionally, like, let's just take Reno, for example, 
teachers have never made a, a bunch of money, right? But you could get by, right? Mm-hmm. If your sign, if your spouse, significant other, wasn't a teacher, you know, two teacher income. My wife and I were both teachers for a while. It, it's definitely a struggle. But the cost of living in Reno, uh, in Nevada, was was manageable. Well, now we don't see that, right? Like now, you can't be a teacher even if you wanted to, just out of necessity. I mean, the starting teacher salary is forty thousand dollars a year, right? The average median housing price is six hundred thousand dollars. And just understanding too that like a starting teacher salary, they're taking home after, yeah, great, they'll have these, you know, their benefits and their PERS, which is their retirement. But what young teacher is looking at, oh, hey, in 30 years, don't worry, you'll have a retirement. They're like, I'm taking home $1,800 a month. Mm -hmm. You can't live. And so to a certain extent, you know, no, money isn't the solution to everything, but it's definitely part of the solution, right? Like you cannot think that you're going to attract and retain quality professionals into a profession that you don't adequately compensate. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have people who are finishing up their schooling, they're doing part-time jobs and they're like, I don't know if I even want to get into teaching because I'm making as much as I would working part-time right now. Why would I go into that? So you have that factor. Absolutely. And then the less with more mentality, you know, it's like, we're going to keep adding more and more and more to a teacher's plate, mm-hmm. but we're not going to compensate them more, but we're just going to expect them. There needs to be more accountability. We need them to do more. That's why our students are, aren't doing as well. And it's complete bullshit because like, think about any other profession that we would put them in a situation that they're basically going to fail, right? Like if I own a construction company and I have my workers and I'm like, dude, all you get is a hammer and nails and a handsaw, right? Like no, no tools, but build the house. And then we wonder why the house doesn't come out as quickly as it should have, or that there's like, you know, imperfections in the, in the quality of it. It's like, well, you're not giving this person who's highly talented and qualified to do it, the needed tools and resources to do that. But we do that with teaching all the time, right? Nevada has the largest class sizes in the country. Teachers are some of the most educated and trained professionals in any industry. They make 20% less than other college-educated professions. So there's a lot of factors where we keep asking them to do more, but we're not providing them with the resources or the tools. And then we look and go, well, why aren't the kids doing better? It must be the the teachers, Mm. right? That sort of critical nature that you're talking about, that part where it's like, you know, I'm already underpaid. I'm already, you know, it's not the highest pedigree of a profession, respectfully wise. And then you're going to start basically kind of blaming me for the inadequacies of a broken education system. Mm -hmm. Like you're pissed about the way that students are performing. You sure as hell shouldn't be mad at the teachers in there. You should be yelling at your elected officials who are drastically underfunding your education system. And if you were to provide educators with the tools and support, I promise you, the academic of achievement and well-being of our students is going to climb significantly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there, there's those. And then, you know, you kind of talked about the social factors that are going on. Unfortunately, education is being weaponized, right, by groups here um, nationally about what we're doing. And, you know, this whole idea, like what teachers are teaching and the indoctrination, it's like, guys, please, like, I don't have fucking time <laughs> to indoctrinate your kids. Guys, like, I'm like, literally the focus of your, of your teachers, man, they are, they are trying everything to just progress your child, right? Mm-hmm. And help them develop academically and social and emotionally. Um, this idea that there's going to have this like, you know, behind the scenes indoctrination of kids, you know, in any profession, any profession, you're going to have, um, you know, I don't want to call them bad apples, but anything, law enforcement, doctors, lawyers, teachers, you're going to have people who go outside. But the vast majority 
of those professionals are just there because they care because and they're you know they're highly competent and they're doing everything they can to help your children right mm-hmm. progress and so there's so many factors it's hard because when we start to really break down the layers which we really haven't even got into some of like the nitty-gritty it can become overwhelming because you look at this thing and you go man like how are we supposed to tackle all of these issues within education so it's better if we just kind of say okay how can we focus on the here and now and make sure that we're we're making progress towards bettering the situation. Yeah, I think part of the the challenge is that it, you mentioned you use the word weaponize, like they're weaponizing education, weaponizing this kind of feelings towards teachers. And on the flip side of that, I think there's this also taking advantage of the idea that teachers are supposed to, you know, do it for the love of the job. Yeah. They're supposed to yeah. give more than more than you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. give more than anyone no, of sure. their their self, their time, their money. Yeah, do it for the kids. Right. So is is that part of the challenge too? Is that when you're talking about giving more resources to teachers, that there is this kind of ingrained idea that every teacher is just doing it for the love and they're willing to sacrifice everything yeah. for their job when realistically, they, you know, you still have to pay bills. You yeah. have a whole life. We want teachers to be committed, but it's unrealistic to expect teachers to, you know, give more than they have. Absolutely. Well, you know, and we have, right? Like we're, that's the thing about teachers. They're very selfless individuals and they will continue to give at mm-hmm. the detriment of themselves because they won't allow that broken system to impact their students, right? They're like, no, I'm not going to allow it to impact my students. So I'm going to bear the burden of it. But then you can only do so much. And then you end up having these burnout rates and you have teachers leaving the profession. The average teacher that you see will not make it in Nevada, will not make it past their fifth year teaching. Like, so you think about to a profession that's most of these have gone to college for four years for, have spent tens of thousands of dollars going to college to become a teacher, and they can't even make it past their fifth year. That's extremely telling from a profession, right? And so, you know, this idea that they're going to then continue to just do it for the kids, where we, of course we're doing it for the kids, but you start adding in these other factors where I cannot pay my bills for the love that I have for my students, right? Like I can't afford to provide for my family with the love that I have for kids. You know, and let's be honest too, like that sort of mentality has hurt teachers because we can be our own worst enemies sometimes because we do get into a profession and we're very selfless. Obviously, when you think about the impact that we know it has on students and and children and we want to do better, but when we kind of have this martyrism of like, we do it for the kids, Mm. well then I don't need to pay you like a professional, like I don't need to support you because you're going to do it. And they know that we're going to do it. So at a certain point, if we really are doing it for the kids, then we have to stand up and say, I'm not going to do this shit anymore. Mm. Like I'm not going to continue, allow this system, this broken system that is not providing the type of resources that my students need or that I need to continue. And that's where teachers as in us as a labor force and, you know, and counselors and all of these educators in the building, we really have to come to a decision where we have to understand our own self-worth, our value. And we are professionals. These people in your guys' schools are professionals. And if we look at ourselves and we expect that out of ourselves, then all of a sudden you, you have a different expectation of what you should be provided. Other professions would not allow the type of shit that goes down in education to happen. They would be like, no, this isn't happening. Like, I'm not going to work here. I'm not going to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. You guys aren't doing it well. I'm going to go to this other company that does do it well. Well, in teaching, you don't necessarily have that luxury, yeah. Um, especially if you're from here. But that's the thing. When people leave Washoe County, it's not until they really leave Nevada that they go, oh, wow, this is how it is other places. Mm. They go to other school districts. 
when you come from a system, you've been very conditioned to seeing it through a certain lens and you become jaded by that system. And it's not until you leave it, you realize, wow, you know, like we're not doing it the way we should be here in Nevada. Yeah. Do you think that the union has a special role in advocating for teachers that can't or won't or aren't advocating for themselves? Is, is there something special about a teacher's union that gets past the, we have to do it for the kids, even if we're sacrificing everything? Is the union a separate entity that can step outside of that perception and really advocate for the fundamentals and for the resources without the emotional you know, fog that I think comes over the situation? An effective teacher union, for sure. And we have to be. And I think the thing is, is that when you look at it objectively, it's easy to see because, again, if I'm working in a system that I know is underfunding my classroom, let's say, for example, for me to allow that system to continue is more of a detriment than if I were to say, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore. Like if you were to think about like work stoppages or teachers, like I've always heard, like, you know, I'll never strike because what would it do to my students? They won't be there. I'm like, you guys are allowing a system year after year after year. This kid is starting in kinder and year after year after year, they are getting far less than they deserve from their public education system. We're okay with that, but we won't go away from our classrooms for a certain amount of time to actually get those resources for our students. And so it, it's something that like you kind of talked about the mentality. I think it's taken time because you got to think about like where teaching came from initially, right? It was looked at culturally as kind of an extension from the household almost, mm -hmm. right? So you had women who dominated that profession. They still do, but then it's looked at as an extension. So it's like, well, hey, we don't need to pay you a lot because you should be doing this anyways, right? right. Like, it's, it's treated as like caregiving. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. Like you should be doing, it's part of what you should be doing. It's like, no, no, no that's not how we approach any other profession, right? Mm -hmm. We don't say like, oh yeah, you should be doing this. So we're not going to pay you. It's like, no, it's an extremely important responsibility in our society. And so we have to treat it as such. And so as a union, what we have to understand and what we're really doing and trying to do differently here is really start to change the relationship that the union has with the school district. But then also how do we get our members to become more active in advocating for themselves. Mm -hmm. Because yes, we're going to be able to do and say things that maybe people don't feel comfortable. But ultimately, if you look at any changes from a labor standpoint and unions involved historically, it's not just the union and their leadership that are out there fighting. It's the entire labor force behind them, right? And so it's like, as we understand the importance of being active as a labor force, that's when we're going to start to see the kind of significant systematic changes that we need. Because as a union, we can start to address, you know, some of the cultural aspects of our district in terms of how educators are treated. And we can really make sure that the money that is in the district is going to certain places. We can do those things. Our school district as a whole is drastically underfunded. Mm -hmm. It's in the bottom 5% of districts nationally. And when you think about just overall funding, even if our district wanted to give every single resource and penny they could, it's still honestly not enough given how drastically underfunded we are. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about how that works? Why are we so underfunded? I know that Nevada has particular tax laws that we're generally a broke state. The way that, the way that we work is we don't raise a lot of taxes. We don't have a lot of services. It's just the way that our state is. So can you talk a little bit about how that goes into the schools? Basically, why are we underfunded? What are the, what are the structural parts that are keeping the money out of our school system here? So, you know, you hit on it, like we're a very low tax state, you know, and nobody wants to be like overly taxed. We also have over the last decade seen a significant drop in the amount, of, like the percentage of our budget that we put into education. It used to be about 42%. Now it's hovering right around 30 and it's even dropping down below 30%. 
So we've lost a percentage of the overall budget, factoring the fact that we don't bring in a lot of tax revenue as a state in general. Um, you have other pockets of counties, right, where you have mining taxes that will will help uh, fund some of the other rural counties. Mm. Um, but when you look at like Washoe or Clark County, the two largest counties, we don't have those sort of local revenues coming in. And now with the new funding formula, it's really kind of shifting all of the state funding in general. It's kind of putting it into one large pot and then it's supposed to be distributing it equitably, which is a whole other argument because it's not. But then again, like just in terms of the context of it, so we are 48th in per pupil funding. So per pupil funding is the amount of money that we provide every student for their education. We are 50th in school finance. And so what school finance takes into account is not just per pupil funding, but how equitably the money is distributed across the state. And then also what is your ability to maintain that type of funding in the future, right? Mm -hmm. So how well can we maintain this amazing 48th and per pupil funding, like going forward? Those three factors together make up school finance and we're dead last. So we're 50th in the nation. In, in Washoe County, we're the lowest funded school district in the state of Nevada currently. So if you add in all those things, Washoe County is in the bottom 5% of districts nationally. There's thousands of school districts nationally. We spend about 33% less on every student than the average. Not even talking the high-end optimal funding or some of those top quartile. We're just saying to be 25th or better, we would need to increase educational funding by about 33%. I think our funding formula had it at right about $2 billion annually. And so you think about like $2 billion when your education budget is about $3.3 billion. It's like, it's a staggering amount of money when you look at it in the big picture. But it's because for decades, we have been grossly underfunded. And so those are the things that pay your teachers, your aides, your, you know, your, uh, your classified staff, your, all of your employees and your staff that pays for all the books, the resources, the tech, all of those things that go into teaching. The majority of it comes from that per pupil funding. And we have factors in Nevada. We have a very high transiency rate with our students, right? They come in and out, which makes it just hard for education. We have a, a really high ESL population. You know, we have, we have a lot of factors that go into making it more difficult from an education standpoint mm -hmm. on top of the fact that we're 50th in school finance. And so, you know, we have one of the highest teacher turnover rates and we have the largest class sizes in the country. And class size is something that is a dramatic indicator of classroom and working conditions, right? So learning and working conditions, class sizes is, is massively um, impactful on that. And we have the largest in the country. Mm. So it's easy to see when you kind of look at all these factors, why we are where we are. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I often hear, uh, I have family who work in education, uh, and I know a lot of people who have kind of the concern that when there is money to be spent in schools, it's not necessarily being spent on teachers, that there's extra layers of administration. There's all of these kind of new positions that have been created in recent years to help support schools. Can you talk a little bit about like the different types of staffing in schools? Is everything covered under the WEA, everyone who's working under the roof, or is it just teachers? Can you just talk a little bit about the the various roles within the school? Because it's not just teachers and principals. There's a, a whole another level of staff sometimes in schools, right? Yeah, you know, you have district staff, different departments that are there to help support teachers and students in the classroom. Um, you have your classified, like your your librarians, your secretaries, custodial, transportation, some of those positions. And, you know, going to your question about that money not going 
personally, I feel like we kind of overcomplicate things with education sometimes. It's always like what new shiny curriculum or what shiny program or this initiative is going to make it. Like this is the thing. We're going to do this at our school and everything's going to be great. And it's like, no, what you're forgetting, you just need qualified, competent individuals in the classroom. Like if you have highly effective teachers in the classroom and you have manageable class sizes and you provide them with the resources, that's all you need, honestly, to have a highly functioning school system. But instead of addressing it, right, and saying, you know what, we do not have enough staff in the schools. Right now, we have a massive staffing shortage across our school district. And not just this year, but in past years, it's always kind of looking at, well, what's the program or what is the solution? The solution is to support the adults that are in the school. And that's not a selfish thing either. Studies time and time again show the most impactful resource that you can provide a student is a qualified teacher. Uh, The teacher and the relationship that they build with their student has the highest indicator on student achievement of any metric that they've ever measured or recorded. And so you kind of go back to this idea where it's like the best way that we can support students is by supporting the educator. And I think we forget about that sometimes because we get so kind of hyper-focused to a degree on the student where we neglect the adults that are in the building. And then all of a sudden you're, you're looking around like, well, why is no one in this profession? We have classrooms at our school right now that don't have a teacher in them. So you can have brand new technology, brand new facility. Like we need probably four or five schools to be built right now to deal with overcrowding. We don't have a single teacher that can staff them. So what does it matter if we build the school? Like we don't even have enough teachers to staff the schools that we do have. So again, we got to keep thinking about, well, what's the solution? It's like, okay, well, you know, let's provide this resource or this tool to the students. And no, it's like the best resource and tool you can provide them is a teacher. And so you got to start looking at why is it that nobody's coming into the profession? Mm -hmm. If we start looking at that and then, yes, there becomes a lot of these positions that maybe aren't classroom-based positions, but they come because this district decided that this new program or this new initiative is going to be the answer. So we have to pull teachers to kind of staff these. Mm -hmm. And they do have a role without question. You know, a lot of the the departments that we have at our school, they enhance the ability of the teachers to do their job and they support our students. They only work if you actually have a teacher in the class. So any of these other, uh, other kind of supplemental positions or supplemental initiatives and programs, they're not going to have the intended impact if we don't have a teacher in the class. Gotcha. So yeah, they're important, but there needs to be the foundation of having teachers in the classroom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. exactly. It's like worrying about what color you're painting the inside of your house when the walls are falling down. Or it's like we're trying to decorate it with nice furniture, which is great. Like in a house, you want furniture. It looks nice, the paint, the aesthetics of the... Like it's an important thing of a house. But if the fucking roof is caving in, who cares about what your furniture looks like? And so I think we try to look at like, well, let's dress it up. Let's paint it. Let's make it look nice. This is going to be the key. It's like, no, you're forgetting the foundation of a school. And it's it's the staff. It's the employees that are in the school. That's what makes the biggest impact on our students. And that's why we're all here. That's why the community would pay taxes. And I'm glad you brought that up because they talk about a lot about taxes. A lot of the times the money doesn't make it to schools. Like I've had teachers who have told me I won't vote for new taxes, even though I know we're grossly underfunded because I don't think that money will actually make it to schools. And the thing that's shitty about that is they're right. In a lot of cases, that money doesn't make it to schools. It's billed as it's going to go to schools. You think it's going to go to schools, but there's this act and it's rampant in Nevada politics called supplanting, 
where basically money comes in from other revenue sources, they're getting more money from, you know, the pot tax. Well, let's just take it out of the base. We don't have to contribute as much to the funding of the base because it's coming in from this other revenue. Well, people vote for taxes to increase educational funding, not to supplant educational funding. They're not saying, hey, let's pass this tax to fund schools and then you're going to take money out of education and put it somewhere else. You know, you're not actually, it's not in surplus. Unfortunately, Nevada politicians really have eroded a lot of trust with their constituents about education. But the shitty part about that is at the end of the day, it's students and educators that are caught in the middle. Like it's not our fault that that money isn't making it way to the schools. Like we would love it to make it into the classroom. Like we desperately need it. And so a lot of it is making sure that as voters, that we are holding our elected officials on both sides of the aisle accountable for the fact that we are not doing a good job at supporting our education system. I've heard of that issue with the marijuana taxes because I remember that was sold very much as, hey, we'll legalize weed and we'll have all of this money from taxes. And then, yeah, my understanding is they basically said, oh, cool, we made all of this money from weed, so that'll just cover things that we're already paying for and take it out of the general money, right? Is that how it works? So you don't actually gain any money. It's just kind of you move the money around. Yeah, and and so so the weed uh, tax is actually an interesting, it's kind of its own thing too. But yes, that is basically with supplanting, right? Whether it's commerce, where it's sales rooms tax, sales tax property, it's, it's kind of shifting money around, right? But with the marijuana tax, and everybody always says, like, what about the marijuana tax? There's two things to know about that. First off, when it was first billed, right, it was to fund education. Well, politicians in the 11th hour, before they passed that bill, they diverted the majority of that money into the state's rainy day fund. 99.9% of voters had no idea that that happened, right? They're not following it closely enough. Right. So for two years, the majority of that money wasn't even going to education. Well, unions, education groups were like, hey, that's bullshit. You guys were supposed to be putting this money into education. Where is it? And then in 2019 session, they did say, okay, we're going to put that money into education now, okay? Which is like, wow, thanks for doing what you were supposed to be doing in the first place. That's really nice of you guys. But it is important for people to understand Marijuana sales, you know, the taxable revenue that we get, I'm not sure about this year's figures, but you know, a year or two ago, it was like $75 million, which is a lot of money, like 75 million. The education budget is 3.2 billion. So when you look at it in the grand scheme of how much, and remember I was telling you, our own commission on school funding, it's a group that has been tasked with studying how much we need and where we should get money from. They said 2 billion annually, Hmm. right? When you're looking at 70, 80 million dollars when you need 2 billion, it's just not enough to really move the needle in any direction. So that's the marijuana tax piece, but like people understanding though that that kind of stuff happens, right? So like we have to be very diligent with our elected officials to say, "Hey guys, that money needs to go towards education in surplus of education." And you can always look at it by looking at that per pupil funding. So it's great because I've been having this will probably give me in trouble, but I've been having lots of conversations with politicians, right? It's just part of the gig and people are running for election. It's funny. So I talk to Republicans and typically they're not as pro, typically, right? I'm generalizing. They're not as pro public education, right? They're much more pro school choice, things like that. They're typically, again, generally not as pro union. So that obviously kind of is tough for us as a union to get behind because you can't be, you got to be pro union in public education. Like those are kind of two non-negotiables, right? (laughs) Yeah. But then I talk to Democrats and their sell for me is, man, if Republicans were power, it'd be so much worse. And I go, you know what? That's not a winning argument that I can pitch to members and educators who are drowning right now. I can't say, guys, I know you're drowning. I know this is completely fucked, but don't worry. It would be worse if Republicans were in power. So go vote for the Democrats. 
Like that's not a winning argument. And so, you know, I'll talk to people very high up and they'll say, hey, well, last year we put 500 extra million dollars in education. Most money we've ever spent on education. And so to you and to everybody else that goes, wow, man, they're really supporting education, right? Well, the reality behind that is our per pupil funding went down from two years ago, even though they put 500 extra million dollars. Well, why is that? Well, either they didn't account for population growth, right? So we have more students who are using more money. So you didn't increase the pot large enough to actually give every student more money for their education. And a lot of the money that they put back in, this amazing $500 million that we should all be super appreciative of them for, they cut during the COVID special session. They cut $185 million out of education. And then they put it back in with a little bit more money and then said, hey guys, look at all this money we've passed. And you're looking at it and we're like, wait, we're spending less on every student than we were. And just as a voter, right, as a voter, it's really disheartening for me to be talking to politicians and that's what they're selling. They're selling to me that we know we do support. Look, we do. And I go, no, you no. The reality is, is that you're funding it less than you did two years ago. I honestly believe that some of them wholeheartedly believe that they are supporting education, but either they're not getting the facts, right? Or they're not listening to the educators on the ground. You know, anybody listening to this, they need to understand this is for us as a union and me personally, this is not a a Republican Democrat thing. This is a Nevada politician thing, right? Nevada politicians, we've had Republicans in powers and we have Democrats in powers and we are in the situation that we are in now and we have always been in this situation. So this is a, a systemic Nevada politician thing or community thing, how we view education and its importance. Um, and so whomever you're voting for, if you value education, you got to make sure that it isn't just a campaign slogan to get elected because everybody's pro-education when they're running for election. But then when it comes down to it, like we we have some, but we don't have enough true champions of education that are like, you know what, we need to do this because it's the right thing to do and it's drastically impacting Um, our students and our society as a whole. Mm -hmm. So for regular voters who aren't as in tune with all of the details of these things, is per pupil funding the best thing to look at if you just want to have an idea of how we're doing the main guide number? Yeah, per pupil funding. And then also, if they're doing any research, try to find objective organizations. Like I would not, and no offense to the current governor, if they go, hey, this is what we're putting into education and they give you a list and they're ranking, it's probably not accurate, Mm -hmm. right? If you look at other third-party objective, you know, national education, Edeline, all these things that like look at funding across the country, they're going to give you because they don't have any skin in the game, right? They're just saying, this is what you spend. This is what everybody else spends. So yeah, if you look at per pupil funding right now, we're 48th and we spend about 3,200, 3,300 less than the average. And a lot of these things too, which is nice is they have this commission on school funding, which this is a group of like the CFOs of the different school districts past elected officials, just kind of like educational gurus, economics, educational people. And they've been tasked with studying and then making recommendations to the legislature. All of that's public record. They lay out very clearly, like, this is where we are. This is where average funding is. And this is where optimal funding should be in their opinion. It's pretty gross when you look at how how underfunded we are. Mm-hmm. How has the WEA been involved in the past advocating for these kind of changes and being in like the political realm to try to change the systemic issues? So you're new as the president of the WEA. So how has it been in the past and where do you see the WEA having an impact on these things going forward? 
the focus was really trying, I think, in the past to get your members active, right? Like you need to get your members to turn out. Traditionally, the union hasn't been as strong at being able to turn out their members. We as an like a you know kind of new leadership, we're really looking at how we change that, and I think we're going to be much more successful at getting educators across even other bargaining units to show up, and that's the biggest thing. You know, there's always a political aspect in terms of how the local and the state, in terms of our endorsements and getting pro education people. But the thing that we've learned through mistakes really is there's a difference between getting a pro education and getting one of your own people elected. Again, everybody's pro education when they're running for election. What we've seen is we've helped get a lot of people elected, a lot of people and Carson elected, but we're 48th and per people funding. So obviously we are helping get people elected who don't genuinely understand the urgency and the significance of the issue that we're in. So what we're really focusing on is getting educators elected, hmm. right? And so we have, you know, a local one in District 25, which is kind of Northwest Reno, Assembly District 25, Selena LaRue Hatch. She's a, an educator out at North Valleys. She teaches out there in the high school. She serves on our board and she's running. She's the Democratic candidate for that district. But it's like, you know, when you get someone like that elected into the legislature, you know that it's not just going to like, okay, I'm going to go along with the party lines and hey, you know. We're not going to push on this too much. No, we need to. And so both the state and the local and all the associations are really looking at like, how do we get our own people elected? Because we need actual champions of education if we're going to change things. That is one aspect of it. But personally, my view is the strongest tool that a union has is its ability to turn out its labor force. If you can turn out your members, that's where you can really push the needle in terms of collective action. And I think traditionally our union has put a lot of their eggs in the basket of their political allies. Like, hey, we, let's just get these people elected or try and let's just be really nice. Don't ruffle a lot of feathers and hopefully they're going to kind of do what they're supposed to do, right? That shit hasn't happened, right? It hasn't happened. And so for us, we're like not going to take that approach. To me, our strong union is an active union. Are we going to get people elected? Without question. We're going to put money into it. We're going to volunteer. We're going to knock on doors. We're going to get school board members and assembly people that we truly believe in elected. But we also have to connect with our membership and we have to get them to turn out. And if they turn out and show up for various collective actions, collective action is how any union is able to bring about change. And we're seeing it across the country with different Red for Ed and education. We see it in other industries you know, you have situations like the rail workers, right? You have unions because the rail workers have shit working conditions and they're drastically underpaid and their unions are like, you can't keep doing this, right? And they come together as a strong union and they shut, they're effectively going to shut down the rail system, right? Well, that obviously has a long impact. And then you see a significant 20% pay increase. They aren't on call 24 hours, seven days a week anymore, right? They have better working conditions. They're getting competitive and sometimes livable wages. And it's crazy how through union and activism and collective action, you can bring about change. So we as a union have to do a better job at connecting with our members. Our members are the union. My job is just to represent them. Our board, we just, we represent you. You guys are the union. What you guys want to do and, and the measures that you want us to take and how far you want us to take it is all predicated off of what you want us to do because it's your decision. It's your union. That's our approach that I'm really trying to push our union is in terms of just like that activism piece. And then 
kind of getting the right people in position. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think that recent positive things in the world of unions are helping you to get those teachers motivated? Like you mentioned the rail workers union, obviously very much in the news right now, but also even in like Amazon and Starbucks, unions are having a moment. Is that something that you're finding to be helpful to get teachers more engaged and on board? Yeah, I mean, we're definitely trying to capitalize on it and utilize it and really promote it and showing, you know, like management, politicians, whatever, they're not just handing out competitive wages. That's just not how those things work. Everything from a five-day work week to benefits to a 40-hour work week, things that we take for granted, those didn't always used to be a thing, right? We take them for granted now. It was unions that had to come together and fight for those things. Yeah, the hope is that we're seeing that these other labor forces are able to you know, improve their standing and where they sit because they're unions and the aggressive push that they're doing. So as a union, we're you know, definitely taking a page from that book and showing teachers like, hey, if, if you show up and you're active, this is the kind of progress that we can make. And these are the type of gains that we can make. And so absolutely, I think it's important to show what other unions are doing and the benefit that they have for their members because it helps us in a right to work state, meaning in other states, if you are a teacher, you're in the union automatically, right? If you're an iron worker, you're in the, the union automatically. In Nevada, that's not how we are. We're a right to work state. So you have the choice to be in a union or not. Now, some unions in Nevada, almost 100%, you know, like firefighters, like everyone's in the union, right? Like that's just because they're really strong and they're good. Us as educators, we have to continue to grow out and show our members, show not just our members, but really our non-members that we can make tangible improvements to their working conditions. We make improvements, then you're more than happy to pay your member dues and be a part of it because you know it's an investment in your profession. Mm -hmm. Speaking of getting teachers engaged and kind of going back a little bit to Empower Nevada Teachers, can you tell me a little bit about what Empower Nevada Teachers is and was and how that has kind of been that step on the path from you into this role with the union itself? It's kind of even hard to explain how it happened because it started off as really a social media group and then it kind of grew because we found that people were really dissatisfied with the current situation. And then, you know, from there, we like built out an entire board. We had ambassadors, we called them. Those were like people at different school sites that helped us get out messaging. We weren't focused on the politics of it. We were focused on the issues. These are the issues and we have to turn out not just educators, but supporters of educators. So if you remember, we did a lot of work with different small businesses Mm -hmm. in our community. Because we knew that small businesses want to support education. We know that businesses, large and small, support education because they understand that a strong education system is a strong labor force. It, it has uh, like a residual impact on everything around it. And so our big thing was we needed to get active in any capacity. And it was really like boots on the ground, showing up on street corners, in rallies, in events, making noise, you know, making sure that people were aware of the issues that we're facing. Because that's a big thing. I The majority of the people even listening, I mean, I'm hoping now, if, you know, that they're understanding the realities. Most people don't. Like you send your kid to school and you assume your kid is just, it's being taken care of, right? You've got other things to worry about. But when you start to really understand the realities that we're facing, that's where things get changed. You have to shine a light on it. And so what we really did with ENT was shine a bright light on the inadequacies, not just within our school district, but across the state. And then it's really kind of saying and doing the things that, you know, teachers want to hear their leaders speaking truth to power, right? They don't want to see us complacent and being like, oh, we don't want to, again, we don't want to ruffle feathers. Like we want to work. Like 
of course we want to work well with politicians and the like that's that's just good business but not at the sake of 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 not calling bullshit when it's there like we have to be speaking truth to power if i'm an educator and i'm in a situation and my leadership isn't saying the things that are going on around me it makes me feel very disenfranchised right it makes me feel gaslighted because what's being said is not the reality that we're facing and so our big thing was, A, let's shine a bright light on it and let's make a lot of noise about it. And through that, let's get a lot of people active because the more kind of that populist movement towards change is where we can finally bring about change. And Nevada is so long overdue. And I think, you know, if we can keep really pushing hard as a union and working with other organizations and connecting with the community like we are and we're you know, going to continue to do, we can see things turn around. It's not one of those like, dire situations long term, but we have to change it now because right now it's an absolute dire situation. We're not on the cliff like teetering off. We've already free fallen. And people should understand that too. Like we can't get your kids to school, right? We have a bus shortage, right? We we have this rotational time where kids weren't able to get to school. When you can't get kids to school, something's wrong. When we don't have enough teachers to staff our schools, we're having to move teachers who were at the district and some of these other kind of positions you alluded to earlier, we had to move them back into the classroom because we didn't have enough actual classroom teachers. It's starting to impact every school, regardless of what neighborhood you live in. It's starting to impact us all. And so hopefully because of that, it's going to get more people active and bring more awareness to it. And that's what we need. Mm -hmm. So this role as president of WEA, that was an election you got voted in to lead the union. What was that process like, letting people know what you're about? And why do you think that the teachers chose you to lead the union? That's a good question. I mean, you know, ENT definitely played a strong role in that because I, you know, became somewhat of a public figure. There was a bit of notoriety in terms of my activism. And and, and so that helped in terms of just being aware of, you know, when you're running and you've got, you know, 2,500 members that are voting, it's just like, you know, Washoe County's small, but it's big. And so to a lot of people, you're just a name on a computer screen or on a ballot. But I spent many years prior to running being very active and being very vocal and being very present. And so whether that was at school board meetings or doing interviews or, you know, attending rallies or hosting rallies and events, you know, you start to become, you know, like people kind of know who you are. And I think I think people ultimately voted because I hope that they felt that the things that I was saying and doing resonated with them, right? Like you felt like you had someone who was speaking, saying the things that you want to say. Mm -hmm. And that's a very empowering thing, especially when you're in a situation where because of how things have been kind of culturally with our district, teachers have had a a really big fear of speaking out. And it's it's changed dramatically over the last couple of years. And I think a lot of that had to do with ENT because- we weren't scared to say things and we would speak on behalf of people and we would help kind of empower them to speak out. But prior it was, I mean, no one spoke out. It was very toxic and very top down sort of uh, leadership status. You know, everybody I feel like ultimately knew that we needed to change, that we needed to try something different, that what we had been doing wasn't working obviously. And so we needed to make a change. And so, yeah, we, you know, we won, you know, overwhelmingly. It was something that you know, we put a lot of new people on the board, but we also brought in people who had been serving previously so that we had a nice blend of like kind of new and old. But we we all agreed that we're on the board that we needed to go in a new direction and we needed to change a lot of what we did as a union, whether it's the messaging, you know, our communication, the transparency, you know, our tactics for how we do things, kind of who we are culturally as as an organization and like what we stand for and what we're willing to do. 
those sorts of things have been resonating and we've been getting a really positive response, um, you know, in terms of like membership growth and people being active in our union, um, they're in the union, but ultimately it's going to be our ability to bring change. Right. So you can be hopeful and, you know, everyone's kind of like that honeymoon phase where it's, you know, it's good. But if we don't produce again, tangible wins and benefits, Mm -hmm. um, that hope will change quickly because of think how bad things are right now. Yeah. We talked a little bit about the political stuff as it relates to funding, which I think of as being like, that's a legislative thing, bills that are passed, funding stuff. But the other part, like the board of trustees and these like school board elections, which have been heavily, heavily politicized. So can you talk a little bit about how you address those kind of issues? So that's not a funding issue. That is an issue of really ideological driven, I would call it attacks on education and teachers with a lot of these candidates that are basically running an entire campaign on maligning the education system and teachers and really getting people riled up and opposed to teachers. Like a lot of school board members have received threats of violence. But can you talk a little bit about the the school board elections and that part? It's essential. And as a union, you know, so we kind of have two focuses from a government relations, right? First part, of the year right now, it's about getting people elected. And the second part is our lobbying, right? During the legislative session, our main focus outside of, you know, that one, uh, the assembly district, Selena LaRue Hatch is on the school board. We are putting all of our resources, our volunteer hours, all of everything that we personally, like I've knocked on doors uh, for hours and hours during the primary. I will knock on doors personally for these school board trustees who who were supporting and we're supporting all three incumbents uh, currently right now. That's Adam Mayberry, Joe Rodriguez, and Ella Minetto. And it's because a lot of the reasons you're talking about, not only um, are these candidates sincerely committed to our school system, to our students, and, and to our educators and really understanding like and supportive of us, their opponents in a lot of situations, they are the ones that are at those school board meetings that are screaming, that are yelling, that are spreading lies and hate about what's going on. I completely understand people being upset about the school system. Like I have been at school board meetings, very critical, very loud about the issues that we face. I'm also coming from a place of like knowing what's going on, right? Like I'm in the arena being a teacher, right? That helps. And then educating myself on you know, district and state policy and how taxes and how all these different things work. Unfortunately, we have a lot of people who are being driven by this kind of fear mongering tactic, Um, this boogeyman of CRT, this um, gay indoctrination, the sex ed, all these sorts of things. It's complete bullshit. Like it's just, you know, and so some of these things that they're saying, they're just blatant outright lies that aren't based in any sort of reality. So it's difficult you and I can sit and we can have a critical conversation and even have a difference of opinions on things. If you believe that teachers were spraying COVID into the masks to keep kids sick, which is on the record, right? You and I, we can't, we, there's no middle ground for us. Like I can't meet you halfway and understand where you're coming from. If you think that we're teaching, you know, anal sex to first graders as part of our sex ed curriculum as a alternative to abstinence, like, where do we meet halfway on that, right? Because I'm over here thinking like, yeah, there's a lot of inadequacies. We got to change some things and we can have some discussion on some of these. But you're, this is where you're at. There are people in our community who are at these school board, who are yelling and screaming, who are saying these sorts of things. They have candidates that are running that embolden those sorts of things. And we have candidates that have said, 
just blatant lies at school boards. And now they're running for trustee. And so for us as educators, again, like this isn't a Republican Democrat thing. It's like, you know, you can, we can be on different parts of the political aisle. We can see, and we can have some like, cause we need to have really strong, constructive discussions about how we can do better. But if that's where you're coming from, if your main focus is coming in and making sure that we're not teaching CRT, like, what are we even talking about, guys, right now? Like, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's a boogeyman. It doesn't even exist. It's not being taught. It never was taught. It's not being considered to be taught. But that's all we're talking about. So the concern from a union standpoint as an educator is if, if these kind of newcomers that are wanting to get elected, if they get elected, we're going to spend a lot of needed energy and resources arguing about things that have no bearing in what we're doing because they're not based in reality. We have legitimate issues that need to be addressed. And so we need candidates who are coming in who understand that we have legitimate issues, but that are also coming at it from a constructive standpoint of not like, hey, let's burn everything down and start fresh. It's like, no, what do we have? What are we doing well? Where do we need to get better? And let's constructively move forward together. And that's where, you know, Minetto, who's in District B, and and Joe Rodriguez in District C, and you have Adam Mayberry, who does all of District F. Um, those three are coming from it from a constructive standpoint. They're different political spectrums, all three of them, different views on things, but ultimately understand that we need to work together to build and go forward versus like we're just going to come in and anarchy and just, you know, burn shit down and kind of do it that way. And that's kind of the approach that the opponents and their supporters are coming in and saying. And so school board is vital. If, if you know, people are listening to that, please be aware of your school board races in the past you know they're kind of that forgotten race like no one really thinks about them and as you said it's been highlighted across the country how important school board races are and our ability to make things better here for our students and our educators is directly related to who we have as school board trustees and so you know if they're listening any support that they can lend us in those efforts would be huge Mm -hmm. How do you think we can reach the people or can we reach the people who are just doing the political thing and trying to get everyone riled up? Are there arguments that can bring those people to like some sensibility or is the focus more people who aren't paying attention who will have sensible views if they start paying attention to things to get them engaged? Like, is there is it worth the effort to try to persuade people who are just actively trying to burn things down? That's a good question, honestly. You know, I think... I always try to come at it from a standpoint of like, why are people so angry, right? Like, obviously, these people are angry for a reason. Now, is some of it uh, fabricated, right? Like, are they being kind of sold something that's not true? Yeah, 100%. Like, a lot of the issues that they're having. Again, but I think about myself. Like, i extremely upset about the current education system. You should be. Like, everybody listening to this should be pissed off as shit about the way our education system is going. Like, without question. Nobody should be going into these school board meetings and like, this is awesome. Everyone's doing great. We are not doing great, you guys. Now, are we doing a lot of great things? For sure. We're doing a lot of great things in our community. And your educators, beyond all odds, are doing amazing things. Our students are doing amazing things. There is legitimate work that we need to have done. And so I think, going back to answering your question with, you know, why are they mad? Taking a second to say, and I always say, if you guys have concerns, who have you talked to? Like, where are you getting your information on what we're doing? Have you talked to a single teacher? No, you haven't. You got your information from a Facebook meme or some email sent out by some random group 
You haven't talked to any educators. You haven't talked to a principal. You haven't talked to anybody that's in the arena who actually could give you firsthand knowledge on what's going on. Because if you did, you wouldn't have these perceptions. And so I don't want to say, oh, you know, it's not worth talking because I think everything's worth talking about. I think that's part of the reason why we are where we are because we're not talking enough. Mm -hmm. Because we can't be on different political sides of the spectrum and have conversations anymore. Right? Like, why is it that if you're a Democrat and I'm a Republican or vice versa, that we can't come to any sort of middle ground? The majority of us are moderate. Regardless of where we are, like, we're pretty moderate. The fringes are the fringes, but the majority of us are in the middle. And so I think having those conversations, like, I will welcome anybody if they were listening to this and they felt that they, like, I'm referring to one of them as kind of these you know, kind of batshit crazy people. I would love to talk to you. I want to hear the concerns that you have. I would love to, and I don't mean this in a condescending way, kind of educate you on the realities of what's going on in our school system. Because if you understood what was going on and you understood the the circumstances that these teachers are in and these students are in, you wouldn't be so angry at the teachers or even in, in cases, the district at kind of the the failures that we've had. You would understand the larger context and that anger and frustration that you should have would be directed where it should be. And that's what we're trying to say is like, yeah, we should all be mad. Does the district have room for that anger? Without question. There has been decisions that this district has made. We have a new superintendent who we as a union and personally I'm very optimistic and hopeful about because she has shown that um, she's willing to do things differently and she comes from a, from a different setting outside of Nevada education. Um, we have, you know, new... Uh, deputy superintendent. We've got new school board trustees. Like we have an opportunity. We have new union leadership. We have an opportunity to do things differently. You know, prior there has been a lot of you know, and it's no fault of the individuals. It's just you're in a system and you kind of think that that's how things should go, and it hasn't worked. You know, and so we need to look at things differently. And I think there is an opportunity here right in front of us going into this legislative session with these kind of new people in leadership positions. That if we're all concerted together and we're all focused on the same thing, we can make significant changes in a short period of time. Excellent. Uh, What did we miss? What else do you want people to know about what's going on in Washoe County education? I would just implore people who are listening, if you have kids, to be involved in your child's education, right? Like, ask your teacher, like, how things are going. Like, there's small things that we can do as citizens that don't have to be, you know, we don't have to be, you know, advanced in education policy and, and all these sort of things to to just have a vested interest in, in making sure that understanding that the more that we're able to strengthen our education system, the better it's going to be for everybody. I mean, study after study, economics and education go hand in hand, right? Strong education systems, strong economic systems, property value, crime rates, uh, socioeconomic status, more, uh, life expectancy, like all of these things are directly impacted by the, our education system. And so if we as Nevadans like want to really value Nevada and be proud because I'm proud to be from Nevada. I don't I hate the fact that we don't value education that we're like oh yeah, Nevada just sucks at education. It's just always been that way. You know what it is what it is like why though? Like why are we okay with continually being at the bottom in terms of how we're able to achieve or support? So um I think if, if as a community it, it really is a community lift. It's not the union it shouldn't just be teachers fighting for it. It needs to be all of us who value our community making this fight together. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Kaylin. Super good to catch up with you. Super good to learn a lot about what's going on in education here. Fantastic to have you as a guest to talk about it. Awesome. Appreciate you having me.
Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Renoites. And special thanks to my guest, Kaylin Evans, president of the Washoe Education Association, for coming on the podcast to talk all about education here in Northern Nevada. Such an important issue, and I'm grateful that he took the time to come on the show. If you enjoyed this episode or any other episodes of Renoites, please do me a favor and help spread the word. Renoites can only find more audience members, more people to share our stories and interviews with if you help spread the word. Word of mouth means everything to a project like this. So tell your friends, tell your families, share posts on social media, and even just comment or interact on social media. That kind of stuff helps the algorithm, helps show us to more folks on social media who may not be seeing our posts otherwise. I appreciate anything you can do to help spread the word, help engage with the show, and let more people know about it. There's tons of podcast listeners in Reno who probably don't even know the show exists yet, so I appreciate your help in spreading the word. This season of Reno Whites is produced by myself, Connor McQuivy, and my co-producer, Lynn Lazaro. That is all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening to the show. See you next time. <laughs>